Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Zvika Krieger about his effort to bridge the culture gap between Washington and Silicon Valley as the first US ambassador to the tech capital. Our guest this week is an expert in artificial intelligence and co-founder of the Open Data Institute. I think it's something we need to think about, that the information will be being gathered at scale, at very fine granularity, but you should never give up on privacy. And in fact, simply having the information is not the same as losing your privacy. As we well know, in UK case law, privacy is characterised as a reasonable expectation. If we collectively lower our expectation, then you will lose privacy. The voice of Nigel Shabbolt, Principal of Jesus College, Oxford, and Professor of Computer Science. I spoke to him about the tensions between the personal and private ownership of data. Nigel, you're the chairman and co-founder of the Open Data Institute. Can you tell us why did you set this up and what does it do? Well, back in 2011, Tim Berners-Lee and I were both heavily engaged with the UK government, helping open up large amounts of public data collected in the name of government, making it openly available. And we felt that this was going well, but we also wanted an institute that was not of government, independent, which could also help push the policy agenda forward, support the public sector, incubate startups in this space, but also, most importantly, demonstrate the economic value that is latent in this variety of data. And how successful do you think you've been? Well, the Open Data Institute, we're delighted to see, has a brand and a reach that is global. It's a widely admired and we have a large number of other countries, governments, organisations coming to talk to us about how we work, how we operate. We're franchised in a number of countries. I think it's been very successful. The model was that we received an initial grant from government and we sought to match that funding. That's happened. We are always aware that government's ideas come and go and we're very clear that what we want the Open Data Institute to do is to keep on pushing this agenda, keep on persuading governments, and in particular the UK government, that this is where it needs to pay attention. And in fact, over the last number of years, the UK has consistently been top of various league tables that have tried to assess how effective the open data policies are. Can you give us an example of where the government opening up data sets has encouraged startup businesses? Well, the most dramatic is probably Transport for London, or indeed the general area of transport in the UK. It's hard to believe, but just a few years ago, literally the timetables, the fares paid of our public transport systems were things you had to pay for or indeed were controlled in such a way that only one organisation would allow itself the benefit of building apps around their data. But it wasn't the business of rail franchises to sell apps. Their business is getting people on the trains and running a great service. So we persuaded both the Secretary of State for Transport in the UK, but also Transport for London to make their data openly and freely available. And that's had a transformative effect. I would suggest that in London, we have some of the best travel apps on the planet. They make a seamless experience of getting around the place on all sorts of transportation types. Now, a lot of the advocates of open data would make the arguments exactly as you do, that we need to open up, share this data, have a kind of collaborative economy. But there are also people who 
use data for very closed purposes. Um, data, as you're saying, has an enormous economic value. And there's this saying, data is the new oil. Do you think that people are exploiting people's data? Is there a kind of dark side to this data revolution, do you think? Well, what there is, is a spectrum. In fact, what we've done at the Open Data Institute, at the ODI, is try to introduce a language and terminology which is, I think, more descriptive and more easily accessible in terms of this exact debate. We talk about the data spectrum, and along that spectrum, on the far end is open data, and at the other extreme end is highly closed, highly sensitive data And in that, you might include various aspects of national security, various aspects of highly controlled intellectual property, various aspects of personal, highly sensitive data. And through that, you move through to shared data, to different varieties of license and permissioning that allow people to make their data more widely available. And at the ODI, we do not believe that all data should be open. It can't be. It wouldn't be sustainable and it wouldn't be a world in which we'd want to live. But we believe that the open data forms a huge foundation layer over which much innovation can more easily occur. And my best examples are always taken from science. If you think of the human genome, that data is openly available. There was a time when it was going to be patented. There was a time when the Supreme Court of the US had to step in and intervene and make a judgment. And it's pretty clear that has created much more value to a wider base of users and organisations that would have happened if it had been a monopoly within a smaller user base. So there's a space for all types of data. They sit on a spectrum and they have various other attributes that make the data easy to use, more widely available, more easy to interoperate with. Your co-founder of ODI, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, has warned of the balkanisation of the web and the internet and that you're seeing the emergence of closed, gated communities, that these ecosystems like Facebook or Apple that don't speak to each other. How much of a problem is that, do you think? I think that is potentially a real problem. And it can't be in the interests of these large incumbents to have that world emerge anyway. It may feel like that for a while, but we've been there in the past. One of the things that is extraordinary about the internet and the web-based technologies is they make a presumption around universality of standard and access, independent of platform. That turns out to be extraordinarily powerful as an innovation base. And I think as people put the walls up, they should ask themselves how the most successful models we know in terms, if you like, design innovation operate. And if you look straight into biology, speciation, diversity, heterogeneity are what make for an interesting environment. And I think there are real worries when people talk about stickiness, keeping people inside the kind of uh, stockade, inside the walled garden. It's at least minimally important that it is extremely easy for people to take their information out of one system and put it somewhere else. And this brings us, I think, onto interesting issues around data empowerment and uh, particular uh, expectations we would have there about data portability. Do you think there's an informational Gresham's Law at work? We've had this whole debate recently about fake news, for example. Do you think bad information is driving out good? Well, I think certainly bad information is out there. But again, a good example, bad transport timetables and bad apps for getting you to the station on time really aren't going to survive. So my view is that in many contexts, people will notice when the data is bad And actually making it more openly available is one way to get lots of eyeballs onto it to kind of uh, critique its quality. There is a more general issue, I think, around the extent to which bad information is like a pollutant. 
what we want to do about assuring ourselves that the data we are taking from a feed, from an API, from a particular place, organisation, has appropriate provenance, that we can trust it. Back in 2008, I think it was, you wrote or co-wrote a book on privacy called The Spy in the Coffee Machine, which now seems wonderfully prescient. And that was really before the whole kind of smartphone revolution. So we're now all carrying around these extraordinary supercomputers in our pockets, which transmit data constantly. How worried are you about this erosion of privacy? Do you think that privacy is dead? No, I don't. And I think it's dangerous to simply believe that's the case. Certainly, the book has really come to pass some of its predictions even faster than my co-author and I, Kieran O'Hara, actually thought. Uh, We look back now and think, wow, (laughs) this has really happened fast. But it's a function, as you say, of the proliferation of devices, billions of devices connected on the Internet of Things, the sheer capacity and capability of the supercomputers we carry around in our pockets, formerly known as phones. So I think it's something we need to think about, that the information will be being gathered at scale, at very fine granularity, but you should never give up on privacy. And in fact, simply having the information is not the same as losing your privacy. As we well know, in UK case law, privacy is characterised as a reasonable expectation. If we collectively lower our expectation, then you will lose privacy. But simply having the information out there doesn't mean I've lost my privacy. And in fact, I can insist that in some cases I have redress, if information is printed about me in a paper or information is used inappropriately in making a decision, I can actually stop and prevent that information being spread further. And people say, well, this is very, very King Canutish. You can't hold back the tide. You can develop regulation, norms and legislation to limit what is done with information. So that is the key here. And in some cases, respect the fact that you will want genuine privacy, that it's part of autonomy, it's part of what the whole idea of privacy arose partly to allow political discourse to happen unencumbered by the thought that somebody's listening into you. And so do you support the kind of EU move toward right to forget, for example? I think it's important that we do have ways to redress back to the issue around data quality, wherein misinformation is out there. I think that's entirely proper that we should have some way of thinking about rectifying situations, having redress. The notion of what a delete button should look like and the fundamental role for forgetting, actually not just from an EU or a legislative point of view, but actually our own human psychology is hugely important. And I think we're kind of reaching our way towards that place. The balance between, if you will, EU directives and more laissez-faire approaches to this, I think this is kind of very much in play. What we don't want in any legislation is to chill the ability to innovate, to provide the tools that the individual wants as well. What there definitely is, though, at the moment is an asymmetry between an individual citizen or consumer's interests in data and the governments and large corporations. It doesn't seem as if the individual citizen and consumer has anything like the same voice. And in that sense, do you think the recent UK legislation on investigatory powers, has that gone too far in weighting it towards the government side? Does the individual have real protection and redress against an omnipotent state? I think without doubt, any modern state, you know, it's... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. 
Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dual requirements, democratic states, of liberty and security. Balancing those two is always the challenge. And we are clearly in an age where the ability to gather information to keep us safe from acts of terrorism, various other kind of malign acts, is one that we'd expect our governments to be engaged in. But the extent to which we give them powers to collect information and then give them warranted access to it, warranted access, there's oversight here, hugely important. And I think that's where you have to look with all of these pieces of new legislation. Are the safeguards enough? And You know, in the UK's situation, we're now having large amounts of information about individuals' websites visited being held by the originating telcos, the people who collect this information, the communication and internet providers. The worry there is, are they up to the job of keeping that information secure? So I think whenever you're trying to get this balance, you've got to say, well, how does the whole system respond to this? And are we assured that we've got the right checks and balances? And again, I don't think you can bake this kind of legislation straight out and have it completely right on day one. But clearly, governments need to be able to process information to keep their people safe. And we have to be sure they're not doing it in a disproportionate fashion. But you think the government does have the right to have the insight into every website that you and I have visited over the past year? Only if it's got a warranted reason to be doing that. I think unsupported fishing trips are not the way we should be running our intelligence. And you think there are sufficient safeguards to prevent that from happening? We've got the recognition in the bill in the UK that there will be oversight. We have commissioners to look at this. But I think that have we got enough of the locks in place? Well, I think this is where, again, the job of the journalist, the job of the concerned citizen is to keep that under review. Now, one of the many hats that you wear is that of Professor of Computer Science here at Oxford University. And one of your specialisms is artificial intelligence, which is now going through this extraordinary explosion of interest and innovation. Stephen Hawking the other day said he thought AI would be either the greatest thing that happened to humanity or the worst thing. Which camp are you in? <laughs> well, I think I'm, I'm a techno-optimist, I would say in this. I don't see it as an existential threat in the way that some people do. I would just say that I began my career in AI when I went to read for a PhD. The University of Edinburgh was one of the very few departments of artificial intelligence in the world at the time. And that was back in the late 70s. And in the intervening decades, I have seen AI become enthusiastically embraced, die back, become enthusiastically embraced. It seems to happen on about a decadal period, and it usually associates with a particular set of new techniques and the defeat of human expertise in some areas. So if you think back to the mid-90s, it was Garry Kasparov. He was beaten by Deep Blue. Recently, we had one of the world's strongest Go players beaten by AlphaGo. I think that AI is really showing extraordinary promise, always has done. The phone on which you're recording this interview, the device, billions of processors and an extraordinarily complicated microprocessor running software from speech recognition to face recognition to general query understanding software. But it's not taking an active interest in our conversation. The idea that the machines will wake up and decide we're a problem, a nuisance, I've always said, not entirely flippantly, the real danger is not artificial intelligence, it's natural stupidity. And our problem has to be if we put systems in ascendancy over us, 
or in control regimes where there are real problems both of ethics and duty of care or indeed understanding how they'll behave. I mean one of the other residents of Oxford, Nick Bostrom, who works down the road here, clearly is concerned about the control problem. How can we design artificial intelligence in a way that that doesn't become an issue, that we lose control? I think Nick pointed something very important out in his work and thinking in this area, which is that you don't have to be enslaved by a self-aware superintelligence. Very prosaic, dull systems can really have an adverse effect if you're not careful. So the question is, what does control look like? I think the one thing that's been very helpful about the whole debate that's arisen around AI in the last couple of years is the notion of ethics, that clearly AI and computing in general is a dual-use technology, just as once upon a time chemical engineering became dual-use, and so did physics, and so did biology. And at that point, you had to ask yourself, these are potentially weapons of mass destruction. What do we do to put in systems of vigilance, or indeed in some cases, limitation. Limitation in terms of how they will be deployed. And at the moment, I think we're still working this out. The kind of daily, huge cyber assaults that our infrastructure is being subjected to, this isn't just a way to conduct ourselves in the 21st century, certainly not nation-states. And the idea that we will need to think about ways in which we can collectively agree limits of self-control will become, I think, quite important. Can you talk more about the upside of AI? How revolutionary is this technology going to be? Well, it's revolutionary in just the way that most revolutionary technology is. As it starts to become really powerful, it will become both ubiquitous and kind of dissolve away. We're barely aware that we're carrying the product and consequences of huge amounts of AI research in our pockets I should say that I always give a shout out at this point. We may think that as software engineers, we're achieving good things as AI researchers, but we've been given that capability by electrical engineering, by people doing device engineering who have produced this extraordinary doubling of power on pretty well an 18-month basis for many decades. And that's just given us a capacity to use algorithms on amounts of data that Even professors of AI a number of years ago were thinking, weren't necessarily seeing the consequences, what would emerge from that. So where's it going to be powerful? Well, it is already powerful. It's powerful in the fact that quite soon we may be able to have a pretty effective real-time conversation across different languages with one another. So the Babel fish of Douglas Adams kind of uh, imagining in Hitchhiker's Guide, this isn't far away, uh, connected to cloud-based computing. The ability to drive cars, It's much talked about. I think it will turn out to be tricky. This won't be entirely straightforward. Oxford does not submit city centre to automated driving, I would submit. You need a lot of ingenuity and a huge amount of local knowledge to deal with many situations still. But the routinization that is talked about quite often, AI starting to appear in everything from super toys to guidance systems, to trading context, to white-collar professional activities, which previously... They were human, but they were rather procedural, rather process-driven, from making a will to having an initial screening check with your health provider. I can see AI making serious progress in all of these fields, and in some areas where we haven't thought about it at all. So I think in discovery and innovation areas, where the nature of the space is very, very large search spaces, very, very many sets of possible configurations, 
the systems will help narrow down opportunities and then human intelligence will be the key to assessing and taking things forward. And in this respect, I've always said that the really interesting AI is augmented intelligence. It's when our machines and humans and data at scale collaboratively solve problems together. Now, you were mentioning just then the potential use of AI in healthcare and the benefits that that could bring. We've seen very recently Google DeepMind uh, have partnered with the NHS and they're trying to use AI to help diagnose diseases and so on. But that has also occasioned quite a negative reaction from people who say that this data is being misused, that we're passing over a collective good of data to a private company. Do you think that's an issue? Well, we're back to the kind of beginning of the conversation, which is very interesting, because I think you can't escape questions about the proper use of information, uh, consented in information, information that's about private individuals, and so on. And I think, again, the worry is that people feel there is a lack of control. There's a lack of symmetry, if you will. So a great public good like the health system is saying it's going to do these great things in diagnosis. And I'm sure they will be very helpful insights and decision support systems developed out of this kind of work. But they need more assurance and more a sense of control around this. And I would say that I think this will bring us to what is going to become, if you like, the next impending data revolution, which I believe is around personal data empowerment. How do we meaningfully give people back control to them over the data that they both generate and acquire and are associated with through their lives? And how does that come about, this personal data revolution? You can never quite know where the particular tipping point is or what the cause celebre will be, but we've witnessed some of the kind of early skirmishes here. And... Again, people have this sense that it's inevitable that all your data will find its way to the cloud or into uh, other people's repositories and databases. We're reminded that the computers in our pocket are also doubling their memory capacity on pretty well a 15-month basis, as well as their processing. It's quite conceivable that we can have highly local solutions to this. Of course, you might want to multiply it, copy it, put it into other storage, but the idea that we can't have an information cloud that is very closely associated to an individual, to a person, and that there won't be some rights and entitlements to that, that it won't be much more of a negotiated process between the generator and the provider of a service. I think we will see that, and I think we will see it in public services because... Again, the US has a nice example in its veterans with the blue button, which is where it turns out that people who are needing health support are the best providers and supporters of high quality data into the system. So allowing them to maintain and update their actual medical records has turned out to be a really revolutionary step there. I think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of re-empowering. Right. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Nigel. Pleasure. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week when we hear from Dame Stephanie Shirley, a pioneer of computing in the UK, about her efforts to break down the barriers to women working in the industry. If you would like to comment on this week's show or suggest a topic for us to cover on future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.